Well, we are glad to be back, I will tell you that. <clears throat> uh, we had a great time away with Sharon and Will and family, and uh, also with a number of friends in Colorado. And then uh, if we have time at the end of the uh, message today, I want to tell you a story. Um, we'll see how far we get. So we have been studying through the book of Revelation. Today we are uh, beginning... Uh, a transition. So we have completed uh, chapters 2 and 3, which had to do with the church, and today marks a transition to the rest of the book of Revelation and what's involved there. And so for this week and next week, we decided to take a, a break, and we're still in Revelation, but we want to talk about two big subjects. Today, we're going to talk about the rapture and the second coming, Next week, uh, Noah, I believe, is going to be speaking about the, uh, the um, prophecies in Daniel chapter 9, both of which really need to be addressed at this point in our study so, that it make, so the rest of the book makes sense. Um, as you may remember, look, let's go ahead and start the, uh, the PowerPoint here. As you may remember, we've uh, looked at chapter 1, verse um, 19 as the key verse in the book of Revelation, where John is told, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so the, the uh, book of Revelation is really divided into three main parts. The things which you have seen, that's the past, that would be chapter 1. The things which are, that's the present, Right now, even while we live, uh, chapters 2 and 3 has to do with the church age. And then the things which will take place after this, that's the future, after the end of the church age, chapters 4 through 22. But when we get to chapter 4, there's an abrupt change in the narrative. And uh, we no longer focus on the church on earth, but our attention is immediately drawn to heaven. In Revelation 4, verse 1, we read this, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. The phrase, after this, or after these things, is found eight times in the book of Revelation. And it always marks a transition from one thing to another. So we've been studying the church on earth, and then all of a sudden, after these things, after the church age, something different, and we are immediately transported into heaven. And so at the very beginning, when we looked at the keys of Revelation, we talked about uh, a key is to look at what is taking place and where it's taking place. Sometimes it's on earth, sometimes it's in heaven, so you've got to pay attention to that. But the main and overall theme of the book of Re Revelation is to look for Christ. So in this abrupt change, the church is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation until the very end. And there's this period of many, many chapters where we are not focused on the church. We are focused on the earth. We're focused on what's taking place in heaven. And we're focused on Israel. 
and we're focused on the nations on the earth. But the church is not mentioned. And so we need to pay attention to that. It's significant because the church is not seen on the earth, uh, starting with chapter 4, verse 1. So John, just as John was called up to heaven in chapter 4, verse 1, so the church will be called up to heaven. We call it the rapture. Can you imagine the joy? I mean, we've talked about the Lord for some of us for decades. We've talked about our love for him. We worship him on Sunday morning. We love the Lord. But can you imagine what it will be like to finally see the Lord face to face? The one who died for you. The one who shed his blood that you might be forever saved. And that is what is going to take place at the rapture. What a day that will be when my Savior I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. So we look for the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. And chapter 4 reveals the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. We did not see the Lord on earth in his first coming in all his glory. He veiled his glory. Uh, and we read that in, chap in uh, Philippians chapter 2, that he did not think equality with God is something to be grasped. He humbled himself, and he lived on the earth in a humble way. But in heaven, at the end, he is going to be revealed in all his glory. And when Jesus Christ comes again uh, in all his glory, he will be known and recognized and worshipped as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So John is invited to come up here where Jesus showed him the things which must take place after this. And so this is the third break in the, um, or the third portion of the book of Revelation. And we will learn about, in this section, about the tribulation, about the millennial kingdom, about the eternal state, and all of the characters associated with each period. We will see the culmination of the times of the Gentiles, the regathering of Israel, the judgment of all mankind. And then ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ will come again to the earth with 10,000s of his saints, and he will set up his rightful rule on the earth, set up his promised kingdom, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We quote that verse often at Christmas time, but that verse really applies to the second coming of Christ um, when he sets up his kingdom on the earth. Now, at Calvary Bible Chapel, we believe that the rapture occurs between chapter 3 and chapter 4. It doesn't mention it, and we there's this like, spot right between the chapter breaks, and that's where the rapture takes place. The church is no longer seen in Revelation, as I said, until the very end. The church, and I'm going to emphasize this over and over again today, the church will be raptured before the tribulation period. And I want you to underscore that, to take that to heart. And we're going to try to prove that to you this morning, because there are churches, there are people who teach that no, 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 no. The church is not going to be raptured before the tribulation. The church is going to go through the tribulation. 
Some, some teach that halfway through the church is raptured. Some teach that at the end the church is raptured and then immediately comes back down again with Christ. We're going to look at it um, and look at a lot of issues this morning as to why we believe what we believe. So first of all, I want to do a little background study um, to get us to where, we're, where we are right now. Um, so let's take a look at the order of events in Bible prophecy, and we'll start with Christ's first coming uh, to the earth. His first coming was prophesied in the scripture hundreds of years before he came, and Jesus Christ came the first time and fulfilled hundreds of prophecies to the letter. And so some of the prophecies he fulfilled, uh, and they were accurately fulfilled, included his miraculous birth, the town of Bethlehem, the place of his birth, his ministry, his trial, his beating, his mocking, the crucifixion and death of Christ on a cross. And then there were prophecies concerning his resurrection and his ascension, and he fulfilled those as well. But there are still many, many prophecies in the Old Testament and the New that are unfulfilled. And do you really think that God is going to go to the trouble of fulfilling hundreds of prophecies and they go, eh, good enough? No, he's going to fulfill them all. And so there are prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, and we are certain, we can be convinced, we can be settled in our heart that Jesus Christ will fulfill all of them to the letter just as he did at his first coming. So the prophecies concerning Christ's second coming and Jesus is coming again, um, that's the next major event in Bible prophecy. Jesus is coming again. That is the only thing we are waiting for right now. Jesus is coming again. That is the blessed hope of every believer. We are looking forward to that day when we hear the shout of the Lord and we are caught up together in the clouds to be with the Lord forever. That's what we're waiting for. The promise made by the Lord Jesus Christ is that he would come again. And I want to look at a passage in John chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 4. It says, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. They're concerned because he has talked about going away, and that's upsetting to them. We want you to stay. We want you to set up your messianic rule on earth. We want you to be king of kings and lord of lords right now. And he says, no, it's not what, I'm going to leave. What? <laughs> it freaked them out. And so he says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That is a prophecy that Jesus Christ will come again. He will fulfill that to the letter. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I've taught on this passage before, and I want to remind you of something about this passage. This passage really teaches um, a, uh, a picture, if you will. It paints a picture of a traditional engagement and marriage in Israel. A man would fall in love with a woman. 
and he would become engaged to her. That's the term we use. They use the term betrothed. And it was a much, uh, it was like being legally bound to that woman. You could not break it apart from divorce. And so when he was engaged to her or betrothed to her, he would often leave. That would, that would uh, happen, and then he would leave. And you go, well, where would he go? He would go back to his home country or, or, or territory, if you will, or his own town, and he would build a house for her. And then she was to prepare herself for his return. But they didn't set a date. It's not like us, where we say, well, September 30th, 1983, Chris and I are going to walk down the aisle, or she's going to walk down the aisle to me. We're going to get married. Send out the invitations. Everybody knows the time and date. They all show up. We get married. End of story. No, we, left. we went on for 40 years. But in those days, it's not how it happened. He would leave. She would be prepared because he could come back at any moment. And there was no known time. And so off he went. And then soon he would come with, with his uh, train of uh, groomsmen and he would come and she better be prepared because he was here to take her, to marry her, to, con to consummate the marriage and take her back home to his place that he had prepared for her. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. I will come again and receive you to myself. The church is described as the bride of Christ. Jesus is preparing a place for us right now. And he will come again, unannounced. That's the rapture. And we will find rest for our souls. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. My heart would be exceedingly troubled if I believed that I would have to first go through the tribulation period. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. I will come again to receive you to myself. When will Jesus come again? Well, that's the question that everybody has on their, on their mind. When, Lord, are you coming again? We say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to be finished with this life. We want to be in heaven to be with the Lord forever. When are you coming, Lord? And that question has been asked even before the Lord ascended to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. And then Jesus ascended into heaven. He didn't tell them an answer. We don't have an answer. We don't know when he's coming again. And so just like the bride has to prepare herself and be ready for an anytime coming of her bridegroom, we must do the same. Jesus ascended into heaven, and at Pentecost, as he promised, the Spirit of God came down upon the church and to dwell in all believers." So now we are in what is called the church age. And it's a period that began at Pentecost 
and it terminates at the rapture. That is the time frame of the church age, beginning to end. We've just finished studying Revelation 2 and 3, and we saw a timeline of the church from Pentecost to the rapture, and that's called the church age or the age of grace. It's the period of history in which we currently live. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The job is not finished yet. That's why the Lord has not come back yet. We have a job to do, church. As believers, we have a job to do, and that is to share the gospel, to tell others about him, that they might also come to know him and have their sins forgiven and know that he is their Lord and Savior. We call this the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The end of what age? The end of the church age. We are called to be witnesses for the Lord, gossiping the gospel wherever we go so that others can enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you today, more than ever, because we are in the last times. We are nearing the end. As the songwriter says, I can almost hear his footfall on the threshold of the door. He is that close. Look for opportunities to tell others so that their sins can be forgiven, so that they can also know the Savior as you know him and be sure that they are going to heaven. So the next big event, the next major event in Bible prophecy is the rapture. We are not looking for any other event. Any other event that people tell you about is a distraction. Okay? The only event that the church is looking for at this moment is the rapture, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to take us home to be with him. Will the Lord come for his saints before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or after the tribulation? Well, let's take a look at it. We believe that the Lord will come before the seven-year tribulation period, and I want to give you some biblical reasons to strengthen your faith, to encourage you today. Um, for about 2,000 years now, the church has suffered. The church has already been uh, attacked. It is ridiculed. It has been attacked by Satan. As you look through the uh, chapters 2 and 3 that we've just finished, you see uh, what the church has been up against in history, satanic forces and trouble on every side. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That's what he promised. Come to him, and he will give you rest. So I want to take a journey just quickly um, and look at a few lessons from history and how the Lord does this. 
So the first lesson is how God delivered his people from judgment and gives them rest. The example of Noah. The Lord says that at the end of history, the world will resemble the days of Noah. If you remember the days of Noah, it says in the scripture, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does, does that not sound like 2023 to you? Watch what is happening in our world. Watch at the corruptions. I, last Sunday, we were at a church in Colorado and uh, they were celebrating their 60th anniversary of being a church. And they took us back historically, 60 years and what the conditions of the world were like in 60 years and what they're 60 years ago and what they're like today. And really to just compare a six decade time frame, it's rather shocking at what has gone on in the, in the world. And, and the acceptance of evil and the, the way that uh, things are just sort of washed under or, or swept under the carpet. God was determined to judge the earth in Noah's day with a flood. But he was just as determined to save his people from the judgment. And when God poured out his judgment on the earth, those in the ark went up as the judgment of the Lord came down. God judged the world, but God gave his people rest. The example of Rahab the harlot. When the Israelites spied out the promised land, Rahab demonstrated her faith in the Lord and uh, sought the Lord's help and protection. And she was a true believer. And And God delivered Rahab before he brought the walls of Jericho down, didn't he? God destroyed the wicked, but God gave Rahab rest. The example of Lot When God saw the wickedness of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sexual perversion and the ungodliness that permeated those cities, he acted as a righteous judge and sentenced those cities to a fiery judgment. But before the flames fell on those cities and destroyed the inhabitants, God delivered righteous Lot and his family. If you remember, Abraham prayed and said, Lord, the Lord said, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do. And Abraham said, Lord, if there are 50 people in the city that are righteous, surely you would spare them and the city for their sake. And the Lord said, if there are 50, yeah, I'll do that. And he got down to a very small number. And finally, there weren't even that many left. But God still spared righteous Lot and his family before the fiery judgment came down. And and, uh, Abraham's prayer to the Lord and statement about the Lord was this, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will. And God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. That pattern is seen throughout the scripture. In other words, God is a righteous judge and will destroy the unrighteous, but he will not destroy the righteous with the evil. He's just not going to do that. God plucked Lot out before the fiery judgment came down, and God gave his people rest. As we look at the rapture, I also want to think about the promises to the church that God has made to the church. 
The Bible teaches that believers will suffer in this life. We can expect to be treated the way the Lord was treated when he was on earth. We will go through trials, but we will not be on the earth during the tribulation period. And so we have several promises. First of all, there's the promise to the church at Thessalonica. The church was actually enduring terrible, terrible persecution. And they wondered, look, are we in the middle of the tribulation period? It's that bad. And Paul taught them and all the church to this day that it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest. Okay? That is the pattern. God says, I see what's happening. I see the persecution you're in, but I am going to deliver you. I'm going to give them, those who trouble you, the tribulation, and I am going to give you rest. God, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is determined to give his people rest. There's the promise to the church in Philadelphia. He says, and we just looked at this a few weeks ago, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth or the earth dwellers. Behold, I am coming quickly. Another thing that we see in Scripture is that the Lord not only has promised to give us rest, but he has promised to deliver us from several things. First of all, he has promised to deliver us from his vengeance. When Jesus preached his first sermon in the temple, he asked uh, to have the scroll of Isaiah given to him. And he opened the scripture, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped, and he put down the scroll, and he basically said, this it, this scripture is fulfilled uh, in your ears this day. But that wasn't the whole passage. He stopped mid-sentence. Why did he do that? Let me read the rest of it. The, when he stopped mid-sentence, that was, that was actually the purpose of his first coming. But his second coming is the rest of that verse, which says, the day of vengeance of our God. He did not come the first time to destroy the earth. He came to bring grace and peace and salvation. And the second time he's coming, he's coming with a different purpose. It's to bring vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not believe or who do not obey the gospel. Do you know the gospel is something to be obeyed? 
The command went out, believe. That's a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes people sit there and go, yeah, well, I'll take my jolly good time about that. I'll think about it. I'll come back later. No, the command today is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's vengeance coming for those who refuse to believe. It's a serious matter. In fact, it says in 2 Thessalonians about vengeance that in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. If you know the Lord and have obeyed the Lord by believing the gospel, you will be delivered from his vengeance. That's the conclusion. So we are delivered from the vengeance of the Lord. The Bible also tells us that we will be delivered from his wrath. Believers are not appointed to wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says that we, this is the church, we are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Did you hear that? He delivers us from the wrath to come. Not out of it, not in the middle of it, not at the end of it. We're not going to face it. He delivers us from the wrath to come. Verse Thessalonians 5.9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not appointed to wrath. We are appointed to rest. That's what he has in store for us. Rest. Another reason we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, it has to do with Christ's relationship to the church. The Bible tells us Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. And his love motivates him to present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And in the same passage, he says to husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It is inconceivable that he would suggest that husbands put their wives through seven years of tribulation. It makes no sense. We can pray as David did, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings. If God is, if, if the Lord Jesus Christ says to us husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, love your wife as you love your own body, he says, do you not think that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do the same? Of course he will. The second thing um, is not, not just about his love. But the, the scripture plainly teaches to us that he, Christ, is the head of the church and that the church is his body. It's using a, an illustration of what the church is like. Christ the head, we are his body. And we see this illustrated for us when, you remember when Saul uh, was, was uh, before he was saved and became Paul? 
You remember when he was going out with letters in hand trying to arrest Christians and throw them into jail and persecute them? He was a madman when it came to uh, trying to destroy the church. And the Lord Jesus Christ stopped him in his tracks. And he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Wait a minute. Jesus wasn't on earth. Jesus was in heaven when he said that. How was Saul persecuting Jesus? He was persecuting people on earth in the church. And that is the very point of that passage, that whatever happens to the body happens to the head. If I injure my foot, my head hurts. <laughs> Any part of my body that hurts, my head hurts. And the Lord Jesus was saying, as you attack the body, you are attacking the head. The suffering that you're causing to the body is suffering that is caused to the head. And so, if you think of that illustration, it is unimaginable to think that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the judge of all the earth, would pour out judgment on his own body. How does that make sense? He is not going to do that. The tribulation period is a time of judgment for sins. Jesus Christ already suffered for our sins on the cross, and that will never be repeated again. Our sins have already been judged. We as believers are in Christ. It makes no sense that, the, that his body, the church, would suffer the outpouring of his wrath upon himself. It just doesn't make sense. That is the Lord Jesus Christ's relationship with the church. What about the Spirit's relationship to the church? What is the Holy Spirit's role within the church today? Well, the Bible tells us that he indwells every single believer. Do you know that the Spirit of God dwells in you and that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's what the Scripture teaches. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And so if, if a person doesn't have the Spirit of God, it's clear they're not a Christian. They're not in the church. But if a person does have the Spirit of God in him, they are in Christ. They are members of his church. We, are, we belong to him. And so that's the first thing. He indwells every believer. Secondly, the Spirit of God has a, a purpose for being uh, active in the world today. And one of the, the purposes is that he restrains sin. He restrains evil. He, hold back, he holds back the tide of evil that would otherwise be present on the earth. You say, wow, it's present on the earth. But the Holy Spirit is currently restraining or holding back wickedness on the earth. How does he do that? Because he is indwelling believers, and it is our responsibility as believers empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to take a stand against sin all around us. 
And the Holy Spirit, living in believers, will continue to restrain until He, the Holy Spirit, is taken away. The Holy Spirit is currently holding back the tide of evil, primarily through indwelling believers. And as believers take a stand against unrighteousness, He restrains unrighteousness. When believers push back against the culture of tolerance, sexual perversion, immorality, murder of unborn children, hatred, and sin, the Spirit of God restrains that evil. When Christians pray, as the Lord taught us, Lord, deliver us from the evil one, the Holy Spirit of God restrains evil. And He's pushing back, pushing back all the time through believers filled with the Spirit of God. But the Scriptures teach us in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, and 8 that the Spirit of God must be taken away. It says, He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The lawless one in this passage is the Antichrist. First, the Spirit of God will be taken away. Then the Antichrist will be revealed. And so you say, well, when will the Spirit of God be taken away? At the rapture, when believers are raptured home to be with the Lord Jesus. And the Spirit of God who indwells them will go with them. In fact, He will go and we will go with Him. He is taken away from this world. And then the Scriptures teach us that the Antichrist will be revealed after that happens, after the rapture. So we are not looking, and just underline this, because there are a lot of Christians that are looking, well, who's the Antichrist? Is he available today? Is he around today? Who might we, th- who might we see uh, as being the possible Antichrist? We are not looking for the Antichrist. We are looking for Jesus Christ. And if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you will be removed from this earth simultaneously with the Spirit of God. When He is removed, you are removed. That is the pre-tribulation rapture. My 14th point, if you've been counting, is the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Now, Noed, Lord willing, will uh, take uh, over this portion next uh, Sunday. But I just want to say a couple of things. Daniel's prophecy contains, uh, in the book of Daniel, it contains a prophecy about God's dealing with the nation of Israel. And the prophecy includes events that will take place over a period of 70 weeks of years. So seven years, seven days equals a week, but in this case it's seven years. 70 weeks, 70 times 7 is 490 years. 69 weeks of that prophecy were fulfilled from the time of the issuing of a decree until the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Very clear in Scripture. We've studied this before, but you can go back and, and look at that again. 
69 weeks of that prophecy were fulfilled up to the time of Christ's death. And then God stopped the clock of his dealings with Israel. God has currently set Israel aside. It doesn't mean that Jews can't come to know the Lord today. Obviously, we have some in our own assembly, Jewish people who are now saved. They're part of the church. They're no longer part of Israel in the sense of Judaism. They're part of the church. And there, but there's one week of prophecy left. And you say, well, you know, God made a prophecy. Good enough. 69 weeks covers most of it, you know. But that's not the way we look at Scripture. If God has promised something, we expect him to fulfill it. Why? Because God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it? He'll do it. So there's one prophecy left. The week, as I said, is not seven days, but seven years. And it precisely fits with the seven-year tribulation period. And you can look at Several references, if you're writing things down, Matthew 9.27, Matthew 24, I'm sorry, Daniel 9.27, Matthew 24, and Revelation 13. So the church, the church age must end because the prophecy of the seventh, 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is related to the nation of Israel, not the church. God's purpose in the Old Testament was to bring his people to himself in a right relationship that he might bless them with all of the blessings that he promised Abraham and David and all through the prophecies of the Old Testament. God's purpose is to bring Israel to her knees, to bring Israel to repentance, to bring Israel to salvation to save her and finalize the uh, Old Testament prophecies and promises to her. And the last part of the book of Revelation is all about that. We must be clear in our understanding of the Scripture. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. The church must be removed so that God can once again start the clock take up his dealings with the nation of Israel that he set aside during the church age. So now I want you to look uh, for a couple of minutes at two of the key passages in the New Testament that deal with the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The first distinction about the rapture is that there will be a resurrection from the dead. Well, you say, well, who will rise from the dead? That's really cool. People are going to rise from the dead, but who is it going to be? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. You say, well, it's nice they're resting. <laughs> who is he talking about? He's talking about dead people. He's talking about people who died believing in the Lord. They're Christians who happened to die before the rapture took place. Those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. They are connected to Jesus by faith. They will, just as Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of those who would rise, they will also rise from the dead. But currently they're sleeping, they're dead, their bodies are in the grave. 
Their spirit and their soul are with Christ, of course. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. But their bodies have to be resurrected. They have to be given a new and glorified body, a body that is fit for heaven, a body that no longer is going to be subject to cancer and depression and suffering and decay and all of the rest of it that we have to go through. It's a body fit for heaven. That's coming. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Again, he's talking about dead believers. And how do I know? Because in the next verse, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the sleeping in Christ? It doesn't say that. It says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here, they're plainly called the dead. Sleep was just a euphemism for death. The dead rise first. This is the resurrection of dead believers. That's what happens first at the rapture. The second distinction of the rapture is that the Lord comes for his saints, not with his saints. It says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, them being the dead Christians who have already risen now, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Living believers are caught up to be given rest. The Latin word for caught up is rapturo, from which we get our word rapture. That's where it comes from. The Lord is coming for you. If you're living when the Lord comes and the rapture takes place, boom, just like that, you're in the clouds. Now, you're not going to be first, okay? The dead ones get there first, but it's a split second because the whole thing takes place in the twinkling of an eye. The third distinction of the rapture is that the Lord descends from heaven, not to the earth. He descends from heaven to the clouds, to the air, and we meet him in the air. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We meet the Lord in the clouds and the air. The Lord does not come to the earth at that time. And then, praise the Lord, we see Jesus face to face, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And we spend eternity as a residence in heaven with him. The fourth distinction of the rapture is that it was not known in the Old Testament. You cannot find anywhere in the Old Testament where the rapture is mentioned. Why? Because it was a mystery. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. That's, that doesn't mean it's mysterious. It just means that it was a truth that is now revealed, but it was previously hidden. We shall not all sleep. What does that mean? We shall not all die, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead, that is the sleeping again, the dead will be raised incorruptible. That's that new body. Never to be corrupted, never to decay, never to die again. 
the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we, those who are living, shall be changed. It's a transformation. It's a metamorphosis, just like the caterpillar living on the earth, earthbound, is now heavenbound. Um, we shall be changed. Some believers sleep. They're going to die before the rapture. Some of you in this room may die before the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. I hope not. I hope he comes this afternoon. I am ready. I am waiting. I am longing for that coming of the Lord. May it be so. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But some believers will die, have died, and some believers will be changed. Then Paul explains that when the rapture trumpet sounds, two things will happen. The dead will be raised incorruptible and the living will be changed. We will also put on an incorruptible body suited for heaven. The fifth distinction of the rapture is that it will be invisible as opposed to the very visible uh, return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation when he returns to the earth with his saints to rule, uh, and every eye will see him. The rapture takes place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, but when he comes back to reign on the earth, every eye will see him. It's not going to be a secret. Everybody will see it. So next we come to the seven-year tribulation period. In Matthew 24, 21, it says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor shall ever be. Immediately following the rapture, the clock starts for the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, and the seven-year tribulation begins. Seventy weeks, he says in Daniel, are determined for your people and for your holy city. The Lord will fulfill his promises to Israel. We're going to look at that again next week. Okay, then we're going to go really fast through the next couple of slides. The second coming of Christ to the earth is with his saints. That's the, at the end of the tribulation period. That will then be followed by a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth called the millennium. It says in Revelation 24, 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then that will be followed by the creation of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness uh, is the order of the day. In Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, praise the Lord, or come to mind. So I want to ask you a question. Given the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again, given the fact that it is very soon, how should we then live? And I go back to a verse that we looked at at the beginning of the passage, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. We have a mandate. It's called the Great Commission. And it is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So I'm going to tell you a story. I promised that at the beginning. I hope you can bear with me in this story. I believe if we have eyes to see, the Lord will give us opportunities to share the gospel almost anywhere we go. These last two weeks, we were in Kansas, and then we spent the last week in Colorado. 
Um, thankfully, we have a daughter who works for Marriott, and uh, we get a very cheap rate, and so we go from hotel to hotel, and it's quite uh, inexpensive. Um, for two nights, we stayed in a hotel. I'm not going to give you the city or the name, but it was in Colorado. And uh, I knew I had to preach today. And I didn't have much time. I was working hard at Sharon and Will's house trying to, they just built an addition to their house. So I worked um, for a week there. And then we traveled throughout all of the mountains of Colorado. And I thought, when am I going to find time to prepare the sermon? And I thought, you know, I'll just do it at night. And I won't do it in the room because I don't want to leave the light on. Daniel and Krista were in the room. And so I went into the lobby of this hotel. It has a very large lobby. And there was a chair off in the corner of the lobby. And I sat there in the chair. It was 10 o'clock at night. And things were kind of quieting down. It was a courtyard hotel, Christine, but a brand new one, much bigger than the one you're at. And uh, there I was, just peaceful, quiet. I could study. It was great. And for about an hour, I was studying and preparing my sermon. So at the hotels, there's somebody who is called a night auditor. And the night auditor is, is the person that is in charge of, you know, people coming and going at night, kind of tidying things up, cleaning things up, just sort of the watchman or the watch lady of the hotel during the night hours. And there was a lady there who was the night auditor. And she came around cleaning tables and all that, and she said to me, she says, can I get you anything? She says, you know, you're there by yourself. Can I get you a coffee? Can I get you a water? What can I get for you? I said, I'm okay. I'm just uh, here studying right now. He goes, okay, and so off she goes. She comes back a few minutes later, and she's fiddling around with stuff that's already been fiddled with. And I, she says, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She says, what are you studying? I said, well, I'm a Bible teacher, and I'm studying the Bible. She said, really? What are you studying? I said, well, we're going to be, we're teaching in the book of Revelation. I said, do you know about the book of Revelation? She says, no. I said, have you ever read the Bible? She said, no. I said, do you know anything about God? Not really. I said, how old are you? 38 years old. Has lived in America most of her life. I said, you don't know God? She says, no, I don't know God. I said, have you ever heard about God? She says, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have. I said, what have you heard about God? She said, well, so in, in the courtyard by Marriott, there's a bistro. It's a little restaurant. They serve coffee and a little breakfast and you know, stuff like that. And there's a lady who works in the bistro, and she's a Christian. And this Christian began inviting this night auditor woman to church week after week after week after week. And so finally she says, okay, all right, I'll go to church with you. And the first time she's ever set foot in a church was three weeks ago. And she said, I don't know what it was about it, but she said, this church is huge. And she said, the preacher was talking to me. I said, oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. And I said, did you go back? She said, yeah, I did, the second week. And I said, was the preacher talking to you that week too? She says, yeah, he was. I said, I think God is after you. And I said, um, um, let me ask you a little bit about your life. And so she began, this is 11 o'clock at night. 
we talked until 3 o'clock in the morning without any interruption. I'll describe her to you. She wore long sleeves right down to the knuckles. She wore pants all the way down to her uh, shoes, basically. A shirt that went all the way up to her neck. And uh, she said to me, I was raised by pagans. I said, you mean your parents are like not really interested in God? She said, no, literally, I was raised by pagans. That's what we were. And she said, we have pagan beliefs. We worship the solstice. We worship all these things. And she said, that was my life. And she said, I never knew God, never heard about God. And she said, um, I, I don't know what to think right now. And she said to me, you know, I died once. I said, really, how did that happen? She said, it wasn't that long ago. And she said, I went out into the hills in the forest with a rope. She said, I hanged myself from a tree. She said, I died. I flatlined. But she said, there must have been some life left in me. And she said, I don't know why. It was 11 o'clock at night. It was in the middle of the forest. It was in the dark. And there was a jogger that was jogging through the forest and saw me hanging from the tree and untied the rope and revived me. And I'm still alive this day. Five times, she says, I was beaten to a pulp by my live-in boyfriend who is in prison today because of it. In two weeks, he is getting out of prison. And she said, I'm afraid for my life. And I said, I believe that God is after you. I said, I believe the Lord wants to save you. And I said, it seems to me that... Um, you don't know what the love of God is. I said, if you've wanted to take your own life, I said, you must have been in a very desperate situation, desperate thought process. And she said, how can God love me? She says, I am nothing. I am worthless. I said, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that because I said, that is the first place you need to get to, humility before the Lord. So you recognize that you're a sinner in need of salvation, because it's sinners that Jesus came to save. And Jesus loves you and wants to save your soul. I said, you don't think there's much to you. But I said, I want to read something to you. And I read to her Psalm 139 of how she is fearfully and wonderfully made and that God knit her in her mother's womb and has a purpose and a place for her in this life and that Jesus came for her and died on the cross for her sins and wants to save her and give her hope that I have and that you have, as we've been talking about this morning. And we talked, as I say, for four hours. She has no background in the Scripture, and so it was sowing seed. It was watering that seed that was to be sown. She didn't make a profession. I didn't actually expect her to that, that night. But I have 
given her literature at this point to read. I'm going to follow up with her, of course. And then I met up with uh, friends of ours who live in the same community, uh, Sally and, and Larry McNabb, and I talked to them about her. And Sally said, give me her name. I'll follow, her, follow up on her, you know. And uh, so we pray that she will come to know the Lord very soon. The reason I tell you this story, she said, I'm more concerned about my daughter and her salvation from what you're talking about than me. She said, I have an autoimmune disease. And she says, my body is killing me. It's, it's, I'm dying from within. And she said, the reason I wear the clothes that I wear and then she pulled up her sleeves, and it's just full of blisters and boils all throughout her arms, her neck area. She lifted the pant leg, and I've never seen anything like it in my life. To the public, she's friendly. She's outgoing. She's active. And you would never know looking at her that there was any problem in her life whatsoever. She wept and she cried for most of those four hours as I talked to her about the Lord. Believers, there are people all around us that you would never know the things that they're going through, but they need the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. People need the Lord. And we are called to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that we have enjoyed this morning. We thank you for the, uh, the fact that you will fulfill your word. You will come again and receive us to yourself, that where you are, we may be also. Lord, we look forward to that day. I pray, Lord, that you would give us daily opportunities to share our faith with others who need you too. We ask, Lord, for much fruit that would come from this. In Jesus' name, amen.